I'm the operator with my pocket calculator. Welcome once again to Radio In Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community here on WCOMLP Chapel Hill in Carborough. This is Ernie Hood. I am a freelance science writer, and each week here on the program, we bring you cutting-edge information about what's going on in science here in the Triangle area, one of the world's leading hubs of scientific research, development, and innovation. You can email us at radioinvivo at earthlink.net, and you can access a full archive of our hundreds of past programs over the past 13 years at radioinvivo.net. The Burroughs Welcome Fund is a Golden Voices underwriter here on WCOM and Radio in Vivo. The Burroughs Welcome Fund supports excellence in science education across North Carolina. The fund believes that providing students with engaging and interactive curriculum helps to spark curiosity for careers in science, mathematics, and technology. You can learn about education grant opportunities for North Carolina schools and teachers at www.bwfund.org. Radio in Vivo is underwritten by Chapel Hill Eye Care, located at 235 South Elliott Road in Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill Eye Care provides comprehensive eye care to people of all ages. Healthy eyes for a lifetime. Chapel Hill Eye Care, 919-968-4774. Radio in Vivo is also underwritten by the Triangle Center for Evolutionary Medicine, or TRISIM, a nonprofit center exploring the intersection of evolutionary science and medicine. TRISIM is jointly operated by Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, North Carolina State University, and North Carolina Central University. TRISIM is an incubator that promotes innovative developments in the theory and practice of evolutionary medicine by fostering cross-disciplinary collaborations among triangle-based scholars, physicians, public health workers, and more. Radio in Vivo is supported by North Carolina State University's Genetic Engineering and Society, or GES, Center. The GES Center is shaping the futures of biotechnology by integrating scientific knowledge and public values. Now live-streaming weekly colloquia. For more information, visit go.ncsu.edu ges or follow the center on Twitter at at GES Center NCSU. Finally, Radio in Vivo is underwritten by Gene Centric Therapeutics Incorporated of Research Triangle Park. Gene Centric is pioneering the advanced classification of cancers for more effective drug development and more accurate diagnosis and treatment of patients through its core technology, the Cancer Subtype Platform. More information is available at genecentric.com. WCOM and Radio in Vivo thank this terrific group of underwriters for their support. How did the human body evolve, and how does our species' deep past shape our health and physiology today? Those are the major questions that my guest this week on Radio in Vivo, Duke University evolutionary anthropologist Dr. Herman Ponzer, works to answer, and the answers he's come up with may very much surprise you. They will no doubt have a profound effect on the way we all live our lives today. 
Herman Ponser is an associate professor of evolutionary anthropology at Duke. He received his master's degree and Ph.D. from Harvard in 2003 and 2006, respectively. He was on the faculty at Washington University from 2006 to 2010 and then joined the faculty of Hunter College in New York in 2011. He brought his lab to Duke in 2018. Herman Ponser, welcome to Radio In Vivo. Thanks for having me. Evolutionary anthropology is certainly a wide-ranging field. Tell us a little bit about some of the overall areas that you explore, both in the field and in the laboratory. Yeah, so it's a really broad field. Evolutionary anthropology is basically you know, anything to do with how our bodies evolved and, and uh, how we came to be so sort of radically different from the other primates, especially our closest relatives, the other apes. Um, and so I've, you know, you have to specialize in a broad field like that. So I specialize on how our bodies burn energy. Um, I've done work in, in different areas, but that's my main focus over the past few years. Um, and that's, you know, there's a reason for that. And that's because from a biological point of view, life is just a game of turning energy into kids. So <laughs> right. the better you do with that, you know, the, the natural selection favors, you know, physical traits or physiological traits, behavioral traits that make you better at getting food out of your environment and successfully staying alive and reproducing. And so when we measure energy expenditure, we're kind of watching, you know, the kind of nuts and bolts, seeing the gears turn um, in that whole physiological, uh, evolved physiology and, and strategy. And so that's, that's why we focus on that. I see. Very good. Well, I, I'm wondering how you evolved in your own research to concentrate on, on that particular area. It must have been quite a journey. Kind of take us back to the beginning and, and let us see how you, yeah. how you got there. Well, so I don't know how far back you want to go. I grew up in western Pennsylvania in a tiny town. My parents were high school teachers. So, um, you know, in a town that had factory workers and, you know, a handful of folks like my folks, my, my parents who were able to do other, other work, um, I was pretty sure I didn't want to work in a factory. <laughs> so that was a good, good uh, influence early on. And so, um, I had good grades in high school, so I knew I was going to go to college, and, and the one college I applied to uh, was Penn State, because if you went to college where I grew up and you had good grades, that's where you went. Sure. Um, and so I went to, to Penn State, and my freshman year, I had no idea what I wanted to do, but my freshman year of college, uh, freshman first semester, I had a great um, anthropology seminar, uh, small class, great instructors, Warren Morrill, Jeff Curlin, fantastic folks, uh, that, and it just made, you know, opened up to me this whole idea that, you know, this whole perspective of, of looking at the human body and, and, and life from an evolutionary point of view, just kind of, you know, the, do the windows, doors all opened up and just the lights went on. And um, that just, I just was fascinated. I've been fascinated ever since. Um, and so, you know, uh, I, it turns out Penn State has a great evolutionary anthropology program. They've got a great anthropology department, but evolutionary anthropology is really strong. Um, a guy named Alan Walker was there. He's done a lot of, did a lot of uh, fossil discovery of our ancestral, you know, fossils from our ancestral species in Africa. Um, and so I worked in his lab. Uh, that tracked me toward uh, thinking about, you know, biological approaches to understanding humans, doing, um, I did a lot of locomotion and biomechanics work, asking questions about how we evolved to walk on two legs, because obviously a big difference between us and the other apes. Mm -hmm. um, and I was interested then in trying to understand how, you know, the sort of energy efficiency of walking on two legs versus four, and if we could track over the through the fossil record, we can see these these you know, an an anatomical changes in the way our legs are shaped. Um, could we try to understand if if those changes came about because maybe they were more efficient? Uh, the way that the, the things that, that happened. Um, so, for example, humans walk on two legs rather than four. Turns out that doesn't save us any energy. 
Um, four legs, two legs, eight legs, six legs, doesn't matter. Um, but we have long legs. And if you ever notice when you look at humans walking, like you watch a, you watch a person walking their dog in the morning, right? Humans have long, straight legs when they walk. Dogs have, have a dog leg, right? Mm-hmm. It's a crouched leg. Sure. Uh, and so that, that really straight leg that humans have is actually what makes us so efficient. And the fact that they're long also makes us efficient. So I, I explored that and, and did some biomechanical modeling and a lot of energy measurements for, for my thesis work at Harvard. So that was all graduate work. Um, and then I think that really, that working on energy expenditure that way, kind of where the biomechanics and energetics meet, um, got me thinking more broadly about, again, this question about how does, this, how does an organism spend its energy and how that's kind of really at the crux of, of what evolution really cares about, you know, taking energy in, reproducing, staying alive. Um, and so that broadened out into this career I've had now, lucky to have, been really fun, um, measuring energy expenditures in humans and apes and other other species. Is anything we can get our hands on, we're always interested to understand it better. Well, you, you obviously uh, brought a lot of biology and physiology yeah. into evolutionary anthropology. Uh, so it's a an, it's an very interesting mix of fields that you have managed to uh, integrate. Yeah, thanks. I mean, it's not, I, I'm not unique in that. You know, there's a whole area of anthropology. I think if people know anything about anthropology, if they've heard about it at all, often they associate it with, you know, archaeology, Indiana Jones kind of stuff, or, or sure. they associate it with cultural anthropology. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are really big, important aspects of, of, of the field. Um, but biological anthropology, which evolutionary anthropology, I would say kind of synonymously there, um, that field has gotten so much more sophisticated um, over the past just maybe two or three decades, um, and it really is a physiological, you know, biological science now. Uh, and so, if you want to do it at a as a career, you're you're going to learn the physiology and you're going to learn the biology because that's that's where the field's at. And actually, I'll just say, you know, for all the parents out there whose whose uh, kids are in college and are getting an anthropology degree, and, and they're freaking out about that. Uh, <laughs> anthropology degrees are actually really great um, for a lot of things, but if one thing they set you up for well is, is health-related fields. You know, Or you can go to do a research for, for your career like I've been lucky to do, but even if you don't decide on that track, uh, it, because you learn so much physiology and biology, it really sets you up for a whole life sciences career. Absolutely. Well, uh it's it's amazing how how you like I say how you've integrated these things yeah. and as you say you're not alone there there are others in in your branch of the field um, there is so much to talk about <laughs> with your work it's almost hard to know where to start but it seems like the best place might be your work in the field with a tribe of hunter gatherers mm-hmm. uh, in Tanzania yeah tell us about your experiences with the Hadza and what you've learned from them. And right. We'll, we'll spend a good bit of time. Yeah, on, great. On so um, so humans, you know, split from the other apes about 7 million years ago. Um, and about 2 million years ago, you see the beginnings of, of our genus, the genus Homo, in the fossil and archaeological record. And that 2 million, year, you know, two million years ago, that, that set of changes it, uh, is the beginning of hunting and gathering. So the human lineage, what we call the hominins, that group of species, that's our ancestors and um, they, they've been hunting and gathering for 2 million years. Humans, our own species doesn't show up until 300,000 years ago, so that's just the very end of it, right? We're, so we come from a long line of hunting and gathering. And, of course, our own species has been hunting and gathering until a few generations ago with the advent of farming and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so whenever, you know, someone who takes my perspective, a kind of evolutionary perspective on how the body works, if you don't understand how it works in a hunting and gathering um, lifestyle, 
population culture, you're kind of missing out on, on how, you know, you're missing the, the story here. It'd be like if you only wanted to study animals in zoos and never look at them in, in a kind of intact habitats or what they're kind of built to do. And so that, you know, you can think about, uh, you know, these urban landscapes we build as our own zoos that we, <laughs> we live in ourselves. Um, so uh, I knew I wanted to measure energy expenditure uh, for all, you know, because it's so important to so many things. And I realized to my surprise, that nobody had ever measured energy expenditures in hunter-gatherers, which seemed like a glaringly obvious thing to do. I saw that in the, in my research, and I, I was totally surprised by yeah. that. You would think that would be a no-brainer. Yeah, that's right. And uh, and there's a couple of reasons for it. One is that uh, the techniques that you use are really expensive, it uh, turns out, to do that. Uh, so there's some uh, uh, hurdle there. And also, you know, people had gotten so comfortable with just estimating how many calories hunter-gatherer populations would burn. And the estimates seem so reasonable that, uh, <laughs> that, you know, it's sort of people stopped really querying, you know, is this really a, a real measurement? Or they, they kind of tra- treated the estimates like they were real. Anyway, so there aren't many hunting and gathering populations left in the world. Um, and, of course, you know, no population to this lab today is, is sort of like, like a stuck-in-time, you know, time machine or anything like that. They're all, we're all modern people. Um, but these, this population called the Hadza in northern Tanzania they still hunt and gather. So they've held on to these tr- cultural traditions that are ancient, you know, and because of that, uh, their lifestyle is, is similar in a lot of important ways to the lifestyles that we all, you know, have in our, in our own paths. Uh, and so they allow us to ask the question, if I grew up as a hunter-gatherer, what would my body be like? How would I work? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, yeah, so in 2000, well, we, we worked for a long time to get the grant fund- funding for this. That's like the you know, the inside baseball of science is how you got your grant funding. That's, everybody talks about it at the conferences. Um, right. <laughs> but uh, so we got, our, we got grant funding to do this from National Science Foundation, um, went and did the work in 2009, 10, and, and it's been ongoing. But th- those are the two big first years. Um, and we measured energy expenditures in Hadza men and Hadza women who are still out there hunting and gathering. No crops, no machines, no Cars, no, no guns, livestock. no livestock. That's yeah. right. So these guys, you know, every morning they wake up and they go get wild uh, game and plant foods and honey out of a, you know, off of a wild, challenging environment. So they are hunting together and they, they allowed us that first insight into what metabolism is like in that kind of a, of a culture. So how did you and your colleagues gain access to this tribe and, and secure their cooperation? Yeah, no, that's an important question. Uh, so... Um, the short answer is that there's a long tradition of working with the Hadza, uh, with researchers working with the Hadza. And it's a happy story, actually. It goes back to at least the 1960s. Um, and there's been this kind of unbroken chain of researchers kind of handing off to their grad students, the next generation. And, and those, so those relationships, those personal relationships, which are crucial, um, have been maintained. And, um, and so I worked with a guy named Brian Wood. Um, another collaborator as well, Dave Reichlin, worked with me on this. Um, and us, we three together did the work. But Brian Wood, who's at UCLA now, he, he's, the, he's the Hadza expert. He spent more of his life probably in Hadza camps over the past, you know, 10 years than he has here in the U.S. Um, and so, uh, it, yeah, so you, you can't do this kind of thing. You can't just parachute in 
just show up and expect anybody to want to work with you because why would they? I mean, if somebody showed yeah. up at your house and was like, hey, I'd like to live in your backyard for a while, and oh, would you, do you mind if I measure all your food, and would you pee in a cup? I mean, you know, that's, that's <laughs> probably not going to work. Uh, right. So you have to have those relationships, and so that's, that's how we do it. And I want to also say, um, you know, we get all human research permissions to do this work both on the U.S. side and on the Tanzanian side. We talk with Ahadza before we do any work. Every time we show up, we say, hey, you know, this is what we want to do. Uh, we want to be here for a few weeks. We want to measure these things. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Um, they, if they tell us to leave, we would. they've never told us to leave, but if they ever did, we would go. Um, they're very mobile. They, they go from camp to camp. So if, they, if one person didn't want to stay in the camp, they could easily go. In fact, what usually happens is people come to the camp. So we, you know, we show up at a camp that has 25 people. By the time we leave, it's got 30 or 40 because people really like to hang out. I think it's, I think it's fun for them. Um, and, and we compensate them, right? So if you did a, a research project, you know, if you sign up at Duke and you are a research subject at a, a project at Duke, you probably will get compensated, you know, some reasonable amount for your time. Yeah. Um, and so we compensate them too. So we, we don't pay, you don't pay cash into an economy like that because it's not a cash economy, um, but we trade utilitarian goods that they would otherwise have to sort of walk out to town to trade for. I see. And yeah. did you, do you typically return research results to them? Yeah. I mean, we share that. So they're not, uh, the short answer is yes, but the other thing is you have to understand Folks there have had very little schooling. I mean, like a lot of the world, uh, not sure. much pr- formal schooling. And so it actually is a, is a fun exercise in sort of translating the kind of arcana of scientific uh, discovery to meaningful results to them. And so we'd absolutely do do that. Um, and we also, we bring, you know, we bring healthcare workers uh, when we go. Uh, we, we try to, you know, we really value that relationship both fundamentally because they're amazing people and we want to maintain those friendships and they deserve as much help as they can get, but also because, you know, it would also be impossible to work there anymore if, if we didn't have that kind of back and forth. Sure. So um, how isolated are, are these folks and do you, does cultural contamination, is yeah, that, is that a concern? An, yeah, so that's a really an important point too. Um, they are geographically very isolated. So it is... Again, they don't have any cars or anything like that, so it would take them a couple of days to walk to the nearest town. Um, they are in the northern Tanzania in the middle of a very kind of scrubby, dry savanna landscape. And so they, they see other people from other cultures relatively often. There are other cultural groups, other tribes that are um, active in that part of Tanzania. Um, and so, but, but, but not very often, not every day. However, they aren't culturally isolated so they're geographically isolated. They're not culturally isolated in a way that I think sometimes people are portray these groups. Um, they know, again, that, that relationship with researchers and other sort of, you know, expats, you know, people that live in Kenya, maybe run safaris, that kind of stuff. They, they've been, they know about the Hads, or the Hads know about them going back generations. And so um, it's the way to understand it culturally, the best comparison I can give to, to folks in the U.S., uh, would be they're like the Amish, right? So, you know, the mm-hmm. Amish, I grew up in Pennsylvania, so that's a, <laughs> that maybe that rings more relevant to me than maybe other folks. But, um, sure. you know, the, uh, the Amish, they know about the, uh, the other cultures in their world. They, they bump up against them every day, but they still prefer to ride a horse and buggy, and they still keep to themselves largely, and they maintain those cultural traditions. Um, and so, and it's not because they don't know about the outside world, it's because... They know as much as they need to know about the outside world, and they prefer their way they do it. And uh, it's, there's, a, there's a pride there that, that is why, you know, in, in other words, 
the cultural contamination would only happen if um, if they woke up one day and said, oh my gosh, you mean there's a whole other way to live? I mean, they know about the other ways to live. They just don't want to do it, which is kind of beautiful in a way. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's great that the relationship is there and y- yeah. you aren't messing there. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and the other thing is I'll say, I'm not going to say that we don't have an influence on them. Uh, you know, if you study anthropology, you know, you, under, you know that there is, you know, no human exists out of context in a social vacuum. We all bump up against each other. I'm going to leave this conversation having been influenced by you and, and vice versa, maybe. And, um, you know, we all influence each other. So I wouldn't say there's no influence at all. I just, I, I hope we try very hard that it's a, it's a neutral or benign influence and nothing, nothing that, that would kind of change them fundamentally. Sure. Well, um, Herman, tell us about some of the uh, methodology that you employ yeah. in, in that relationship. Yeah, I'm so— uh, particularly interested in something I had never seen before called doubly labeled water. Uh, that's right. Yeah, so we do all the things you'd expect. You know, we, we, uh, we pay attention to what kind of foods come into camp, who's related to whom, how families, you know, ages, ages of people, and um, all the kind of demographic stuff you'd want to know about and, and all that stuff. Um, but what we added in this this project in 2009 and 10, uh, the work that hadn't been done before this, was uh, measuring calories per day. And, and the, you're right, we use a technique called doubly labeled water for that. Now, here's how it works. I've never ordered that at the no, at the bar. Yeah. You would know because your check at the end of the day would be like a thousand dollars. So, uh, so it's this is the gold standard for measuring how many calories you burn every day. Um, it's the technique that we use in public health here in the U.S. or anywhere else. It's, it's totally safe and, and non-toxic, and it's very precise in, in how it works. You drink about a half cup of water. Now, that water, water is H2O, right? So um, it, this, this is doubly labeled water. Uh, some of the H's are deuterium, an isotope of, of hydrogen, mm-hmm. and some of the O's are O18, which is an isotope of oxygen. So your body can't tell the difference. It uses it completely the same as regular water, which means it goes into diffusion throughout your whole body water pool. Um, now, over time, and th- we do these studies over about seven days, over time, um, you flush out that, those isotopes, and you flush out the deuteriums with all the H2O that you lose. So whenever you, you pee, or you sweat, or you breathe out water vapor, any way that you lose water, you're going to lose those, H, H, those H's, those, those, sorry, those deuteriums. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be measured quite precisely. Yeah, well, so what we do is we get urine samples every couple of days, and we can watch that enrichment go down, 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 right? Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's like watching uh, if, you, if you put wa- food coloring into a tub and then pull the drain. Uh, but then you kept the spigot going on, too. So the, the amount of water in the tub stayed the same, but slowly you'd replace that colored water with fresh water. And if we, if we paid attention to the color of the water every few hours, we, we could track that rate of ha- you know, how that happens. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so same tech, same idea here. Only we're measuring isotopes instead of color, uh, and um, so do we. So the oxygen is also lost with all the water that you lose, but the oxygen is also lost with the CO two that you breathe out. So um, it turns out that one of the O's from every CO two that you breathe out comes from your body water. So if we track the rates of loss of the oxygen and deuterium isotopes, we see that you lose the oxygen faster. That's because you're losing the oxygen also with CO two. When we compare the rates of loss, the amount of difference in, in the rate of loss tells us how much CO2 you're producing. And that tells us uh, how many calories you're burning because you, you can't burn calories without making CO2, and you can't make CO2 without burning calories. So it's, it's a really precise measure of calories burned per, per day. 
So you have uh, formulas that uh, apply to this that have been long since worked out, I take it. This is a technique that got worked out. uh, The the principles got worked out in the 50s. A guy named Nathan Lifson. Um, It got cheap enough to do in humans in the 80s. Uh, and so we've been doing this since the 1980s. In fact, uh, I'm, I'm a member of a, a global consortium to consolidate all the data in humans that have ever been collected using this, this technique. Mm-hmm. We have thousands and thousands of people now. Uh, and so, you know, dating back to about 1980 80 or 82. Wow, that, that yeah. should be... Pretty interesting results soup, once you put it all together. Yeah, we're, that's uh, we'll we'll chat again some in a year when we have some of that stuff out. Cool. Uh, well, let's let's talk results because uh, that's that's the part I had teased in the uh, in the opening that is really going to surprise some people. Yeah. So uh, so we know that the Hadza are extraordinarily physically active. They get more physical activity in a day than you know Americans get in a week. Which is sad for Americans. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, and, and we, you know, it's, it's been this idea in a long time in public health that, oh, well, the reason that we have obesity and, and diabetes these days in, mo- in the modern world is because we don't burn as many calories as we did as hunter-gatherers. And so that radical shift from hunting and gathering to urban living today means we don't burn as many calories. And because we don't burn as many calories, we're getting those calories are, are adding up as fat in our bodies. And so when we measured the calories burned per day with the Hadza, we were expecting really high energy expenditures. Sure. Um, and that's not what we found at all. Not at all. We found that they burn the same number of calories every day as you and I do here in the, in the U.S. and Europe and, and other industrialized countries. It totally blew our minds. That is counterintuitive. Yeah. I mean, in fact, we were sure we were wrong. Right? <laughs> we figured we messed it up. So uh, – so we reanalyzed the data, and we, we've, you know, we've, we've used other techniques to try to, to you know, estimate energy expenditures we're using heart rates, for example. Uh, we've looked at other populations uh, and by now, and, um, and the result holds up very strongly. Um, really physically active populations like the Hadza don't burn more calories than folks in the U.S. and Europe. Wow, that that is really totally surprising. Yeah, and, and has so many implications, which we will will get into. Yeah, uh, but what about their diet? Uh, what types of foods do the hunters yeah. eat? Yeah, so this is also instructive, right? I mean, um, when we think about you know hunting and gathering diets today, uh, you just a, you know a sh- a dip your toe into social media on this subject, and it, it's a pretty uh, crazy world out there. People who are saying, oh, in the hunting and gathering past, we only ate meat. Or in the hunting and gathering past, we only ate vegetables. And uh, it's none of those things are true. So they eat a mixed diet, uh, game and plant foods um, and honey, a lot of honey. So um, they get about half their calories every day from meat. Um, it varies day to day and season to season, but about half from meat and about half from plant foods um, and honey, uh, the plant foods that they like to eat, or they eat a lot of anyway, are a lot of wild tubers, which are very starchy, of course, the sort of wild counterparts to potatoes and yams and the kind of stuff we eat here mm-hmm. in the U.S. Um, the game meat, of course, is pretty typically pretty lean. Most, If, you've, if you're a deer hunter here in North Carolina, uh, you know how lean deer meat is. That's pretty typical for, for game animals. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's kind of surprising, I think, to, to see... It shouldn't be surprising, I should say, but it, it will surprise some listeners to learn just how mixed that is um, and actually and how kind of carbohydrate heavy it is. We think about carbohydrates and sugars as being maybe even risky in the U.S., 
Um, and maybe they are in this context with all the other things we have going on. Um, but I'll tell you that the Hods eat a lot of carbs, and, and they get something like... So the men, when they're not hunting, um, they will climb trees with a sort of small axe and chop into the limbs of these baobab trees. It's really heroic, amazing work. They, I mean, to them, it's just a day in the office, but uh, it's amazing to watch this stuff. And they get the bejesus stung out of them by these <laughs> bees. And they will come home with, you know, buckets full of honey uh, to share, and, and they'll eat a lot there. So they get, we, we estimate they get about 15 to 20% of their calories every day on average, a yearly sort of gross average over the year uh, from honey. I mean, you, that would be like drinking wow. a, a coffee cup full of honey every day, you know? Yeah, major sugar highs. Totally, <laughs> totally, yeah. So we've, yeah, that's been really surprising about their diet. Um, yeah. And, and no processed foods, right? No, well, that's right. So that's that's an important point. Um, it's all whole food. I mean, it's, it doesn't get any more whole foods than that. Yeah. You know? uh, so, Herman, what are what are some of the implications of your findings about energy expenditure? Yeah, yeah. So, um First of all, I want to be really clear that you still have to exercise. Let's start with let's start with a caveat first. <laughs> right, yeah. uh, let me off the hook. Again. We're not saying that you can't, you don't have to exercise. In fact, you, we'll, we'll get. I hope to, to to how this makes it even more important to exercise. But um, our results say that even if you're physically active, you're going to burn as many calories as you were when you're less active. And so, if you think about obesity, um, unhealthy weight gain as fundamentally bringing more energy in than you're burning off. It has to be true. Mm -hmm. Um, So so we can think about this as an equation. Energy in equals energy out. If it doesn't equal it, then you're in trouble. Right. And you're building up fat. Right. Yeah. Um, And so if the energy out piece of that equation is kind of stuck, because no matter what your lifestyle is, you're going to burn a certain number of calories. It's kind of fixed. It's hard to move the needle on that side of the equation. Well, then the other more flexible side of the equation is going to be the energy in equation part, which means um, at a societal level, uh, diet, the foods that we eat um, are going to be more important, uh, a bigger cause of obesity um, than exercise. Yeah. Which is a rude awakening for, for some people. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, we've known, and I, I wanted to say again, it isn't just the Hodge result. If, the, if it was just the Hodge result, we could kind of write it off as a weird thing. Sure. It's other populations, too. We've looked across the globe. We've looked at other active populations. We looked in, in animal models. If you compare animals in a zoo to animals in the wild, same calories per day. So this isn't just us, and it isn't just the Hadza. Um and we've known for a long time, going back decades, that, that diet has a much bigger effect on weight than exercise does. And I think this helps explain why. Um, I think the rude awakening comes from this uh, marketing uh, that we have uh, around health and fitness that exercise is going to be the, the one-stop shop for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, people also... If you if they were to pick one kind of concern, one health concern, um, we're all you know we're all vain people. We all want to look good. Uh, maybe maybe our weight is the one kind of health variable that we're most in tune with, um, and so we think that if we're being healthy, we're going to help our weight. Um, well, it's not that simple. You need to watch your diet for your weight. You need to watch your exercise for everything else. So you still have to exercise, um, but. Diet's going to be the tool you want to use for weight. I see. Absolutely. Well, Herman, a bigger question perhaps is where does evolution figure into, into yeah. all this? Yeah. So um, 
the the way that I've come to think about this now uh, is is maybe different than the way that that your listeners have been trained. Certainly, differently than I was trained in how to think about how lifestyle and energy expenditure work together. Here's how I think about it: um, a species, any any organism, should burn as many calories as it can, because the more calories you burn, the more things you can do. You can you can survive better and reproduce better. So you should burn as many calories as you can, but no more. Mm-hmm. You burn too many, mm-hmm. you're over the budget, and you, you know, it's like the price is right. You go over, you're done. Um, and so you'd actually want to keep, uh, if you want to think about the sort of a game theory point of view from an evolutionary theory point of view, an organism is doing going to do best when it matches uh, its energy expenditure every day to the amount of food available in its environment in the long long run average. And so it shouldn't be changing its energy expenditure up and down depending on physical activity. It should keep its energy expenditure kind of at that sustainable level. If they're more active, okay, we'll burn less energy on other stuff. If they're less active, okay, well, now you can burn more energy on reproduction and and maintenance and immune system and all those other things that that are also really important. And so that's why we think that our bodies are built to be kind of inflexible uh, relative to activity because – if you, there's always more things you could be doing with that energy if you're not physically active. So you're less active, you're going to burn the calories anyway on something else. If you're more active, okay, well, hey, let's not go overboard, though. Let's, let's dial back the energy expenditure on other physiological tasks, all the things our bodies do to keep alive. Um, and, uh, you know, some of that stuff is kind of, is flexible. Uh, so you can, you can ramp down reproductive hormone production and reproductive system activity. You can ramp down Immune system activity and, and, you know, suppress inflammation, for example, which we know exercise is actually really good for. Mm-hmm. You can ramp down uh, stress reactivity so you don't get as a big of a cortisol surge and a big energy surge um, when you get stimulated with some, some, uh, some stressor in the, in the environment. Um, so I, we, I, we think this is what's going on, that the body's sort of juggling tasks to keep the, the, the bill at the end of the day more or less the same. Well, I know that you've, you, and you just started to touch on it, yeah. done a lot of work comparing uh, human energy expenditure with animal energy expenditure, mm-hmm. especially the other primates. Uh, so humans uh, apparently have a much faster metabolism yeah. than other species. Uh, and, and the answer to why that is is, is fascinating. Help us out. Yeah, so uh, part of this work, you know, we started doing these energy expenditure measurements in the Hadza, uh, and we realized, well, wait a second, if we want to broaden this out to understand a really evolutionary view of humans, we need to have not just our species and different populations of humans, we need to have other populations of closely related primates. And nobody had done that work either. So as a, sci- as a young scientist, um, I'm not sure I am anymore, but I was then, uh, this is exactly where you want to be. Mm-hmm. You want to be mm-hmm. in an area of work that, that people understand is important, but nobody's done the work. How exciting is that? That's uh, pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. So we started doing these measurements of, um, of ape energy expenditures uh, in zoos and sanctuaries around the globe. So the apes, of course, are um, the chimpanzees, gorillas, bonobos, orangutans, all of our closest relatives. And what we found was um, that humans have, like you said, they, you, know, you have to correct for body size, of course, because a male gorilla weighs 400 pounds. And bigger people, bigger animals burn more calories. So you have to, they have to adjust for body size. But it, accounting for body size differences, um, humans burn you know, 20% more calories every day than a chimpanzee, um, 40% more than a gorilla, almost 100% more than an orangutan, twice as much, I should say, as, as an orangutan. So 
Um, we have really fast metabolisms. Our, our cells work harder. Our bodies are better at bringing energy in and absorbing it into our bodies and making that energy available faster. Um, and we think that that has been essential for all the really um, energy costly, energetically costly traits that make humans so different. So humans have really big brains. Of course, you, you know, we wouldn't be ourselves if we didn't have our big brains. Your brains are extraordinarily expensive. When we're sitting here having this conversation, our brains are burning 20% of our calories right now. Every fifth breath, right, wow. is, is the oxygen just mm -hmm. needed to, to burn those calories uh, in your brain. Um, we have, we're physically, very physically active. So evolving that hunting and gathering lifestyle meant that we went from, you know, other apes go maybe a kilometer or two a day to going 15 kilometers a day. And we, our bodies have to be able to, to support that, um, that, that activity level. Uh, humans have babies, bigger babies, and more often um, than any of the other apes do. Uh, Is that right? That, yeah, I yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm talking, of course, in, in, in cultures that don't use, you know, don't, don't have effective birth control, don't use birth control. Sure. Um, but in cultures like the, we call those natural fertility populations, that's the term of art in demography. Okay. Um, you know, a, a woman will have a kid every two years. Um, of course, here in the, in the U.S., if, you, if a woman had wanted to, she could have a kid every year, right? Um, and uh, uh, the ape physiology is just not set up for that. You, they, especially in the wild, apes don't, an ape mom uh, doesn't recover enough uh, to, to have another kid for, you know, three, four years. Uh, so we really have a, an accelerated pace of reproduction. Um, we live a long time, right? Yeah, so think about that. We, part of the reason that we live a long time um, is that we are able to invest more in, in keeping ourselves going. Yeah, that takes energy. Just like, you know, you take your car to the shop to get everything fixed up. Well, we're doing that every night. We go to sleep and we fix ourselves up. That takes energy. So all these things that make human life what it is today, uh, that, you know, make a, a radio show possible because we have big enough brains <laughs> to handle it and all these things. Um, the, these are uh, fundamental um, energy-expensive traits that are only possible because we have this ramped-up metabolic rate. That that's exciting. Yeah, yeah. it's really cool. It, it's really fun to be able to uh, to add. You know, if you think about well, what you know, if you were to ask a student, what makes humans different than the other animals? And we talk about language, and we talk about big brains, and we talk about we'd be right about all those things. Walking on two legs, um, it feels really special to be able to add something to that. Sure. Say, oh, and also by the way, we have these high metabolic rates. We can add that to the uh, to the list of things that make us just fundamentally different and to be able to add to that list has really felt really fun and i understand that another aspect that you might uh, be able to add to that list yeah. is that uh, we are the only spe species that will share food yeah well we think that this is one of the things that made uh, that high metabolic rate possible right so uh you know why don't other apes ramp up their their metabolic rates why why don't they burn more calories if it's so good well the answer is uh that they don't have the means to do that because they all forage for themselves. The apes share a very little bit. You know, um, an ape mother might occasionally share a bit of food with her baby. Mm -hmm. um, ape adults, bonobos are the best at this, by the way, but um, bonobos are, are the sort of the best sharers. But even they hardly do compared to what humans can do. And none of them are kind of going out uh, and getting food and bringing it back to the community for the express purpose of giving it away. Um, but that's what hunting and gathering is all about, right? That is the key to hunting and gathering. And that synergy of, you know, you go out and get what you can get, I'll go out what I can get. If you come home empty-handed, that's okay, because I'll, I'll share with you, and then tomorrow we might be in different situations, and you'll share with me. Um, that allows us to kind of be able to depend on having more calories available. And, of course, evolution can only work 
with what it's got. So until there was that behavioral change to hunting and gathering and sharing is a fundamental piece of that, only when that kind of was, a, was there uh, was, was it possible to, to evolve these high metabolic rates. And it, the, the high metabolic rate and this energy expenditure is in fact an evolved trait. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, just, uh, our, our cells just work differently. And, uh, and that has changed, you know, uh, as, close as, as closely related as we are to the other apes, some of those small changes that, that have happened um, evolutionarily have been it, it, to, to, to ramp up our metabolic rates. Absolutely. I see. Well, Herman, you've told us about your field research mm-hmm. methods, but I know that you also integrate that data with your laboratory work. Tell us about those methods and, and how they contribute to your findings. Yeah, well, so anytime we get these, these results from the field, um, we, you know, you get the sort of broad picture, you get the naturalistic situation, which I think is really important. But there are some really detailed questions that those that those results bring up that you just can't answer in the field, right? We can't, uh, we wouldn't want to ask a Hadza guy to, you know, stay in camp for three days while we, you know, carefully monitor every little thing. It would just ruin, it's not, it's not the point. That's not how we do it. Sure. Um, so when we want to know something about mechanism, about how our cells kind of at that level are responding, um, we need to have uh, uh, laboratory measurements. And so we, you know, at, at Duke, um, we're in the process of setting up what I, I think will be one of the, the best energetics labs uh, in the country. You know, hopefully we'll, we'll be able to really do some exciting stuff there. We have a, a metabolic chamber where we, we can, it's sort of a Manhattan apartment. That's the, that's the positive spin on it. It's, <laughs> it's a very small room where you can hang out for you know, a few days even, and we can measure minute by minute how many calories you're burning. You know, it's one, a really specialized piece of equipment that's really fun. Um, and uh, we can measure, we can do this doubly labeled water measurements that we do the isotope analyses there. We can measure um, exercise expenditures. We can, we can measure, you know, we, we can take blood samples or other tissue samples and we can see, okay, well, if, if you've been exercising your whole life and your body has had to adjust to that, can we actually see in your cells them functioning differently uh, in a way that they manage energy compared to someone who's been measuring, who, who, who is more sedentary and hasn't had to do that. Um, we're on the brink of, of being able to do that kind of work now with, with colleagues at, uh, you know, at Duke and other, other places. So, um, yeah, when you want to, you, you kind of, you go to, the la- go to the field to really learn how the natural world works. It's the, it's the real world, you know, rubber hits the road kind of you know, reality check of how things go. It's inspiring because it gets you literally because it just inspires all these ideas and, and but then you got to come home and test some of these things and that's that's what the lab's for. And then you come home and do the science. Well, I, I think it's yeah, I, I think that's fair. At the same time, I'd say well, it's both science, but okay. uh, but it's it's different different hats. You are listening to Radio In Vivo, and my guest today is Dr. Herman Ponzer from Duke University, and we are learning all about his amazing work in the field of evolutionary anthropology. Uh, Herman, I know we've already touched on it, but I'd like to spend a little bit more time specifically considering what you have called the exercise paradox yeah, uh, and the constrained energy expenditure model that you have developed. Let's start with the energy paradox. What is that precisely? Yeah, so that's what uh, we call this idea that you can exercise more and more and your body doesn't burn more calories. Now, I want to be, let's get into a little bit of detail there because people misunderstand that or maybe I don't communicate it very well all the time. So I want to make sure I'm real clear about that. Sure. Um, 
people fluctuate your, your calorie expenditure fluctuates day to day. If you go for a run today, but you didn't yesterday, you're going to burn more calories today. So day to day, there's fluctuations. Um, and so when we talk about a kind of a constant energy expenditure, we're talking about kind of over a week long time frame. Uh, now, if you, you know, decide to start an exercise program tomorrow and you're exercising tons more than you were before, yes, your energy expenditure is going to go up um, for, you know, a few weeks while your body adjusts. It won't be until those, you know, after a few weeks of that constantly changed lifestyle that your body finally makes the, the, the adjustments kind of under the hood uh, to where you'll be back at the same energy expenditure that you were before you started the exercise program. It's a, it's a homeostatic That's right. Process, That's right. right. And, and some homeostatic processes happen immediately. You know, you go out inside and get cold. You know, your, your blood vessels constrict, your heart rate goes up, you shiver, and your body tries to get your body temperature right back to where it was right away. Sure. Um, some homeostatic <laughs> things take longer. So this is a, this is a sort of weeks-long, even a few months-long process. But um, So I don't want your readers to th- or your listeners to think that, you know, what do you mean? I, I went for a run yesterday, I didn't today, and I, was hung- you know, I felt like I burned more energy yesterday. Yeah, you did. It fluctuates day to day. And I'm not saying that if you start an exercise program tomorrow, you won't burn more calories for a while. In fact, that's why you're going to lose weight for the first couple of weeks, and then it's, that's going to stop. And yeah. That's frustrating for people. Sure. Um, so, but that's the exercise paradox: is that when we compare, you know, I- I- these populations that have been ex- exercising forever, like the Hadza, to people who haven't been, we don't see a difference in energy expenditures because they've kind of gone through those homeostatic processes in both cases. And and energy expenditure also maintains a quite narrow range, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so. Um, your body works hard uh, in the same way that your body tries to keep its body temperature in the same range, in a narrow range, or blood glucose, blood, you know, blood sugar in a narrow range. It's, it seems to be doing the same with calories per day. We, we're surprised by that. And, you know, so big people burn more calories than small people because you just have more cells active. But when we account for that body size, it's, it, everybody's in the same narrow range. I see. Yeah. Uh, now, what are the implications of this uh, for athletes, for example? Yeah, so... Um, so if you are an athlete, you're, you're exercising regularly, um, that's probably a really good thing. We know that, that exercise is really good for you. What that's going to do is it's going to reduce the energy that your body has to spend on other stuff. And that might sound bad, but it's actually good because it's going to reduce how much your immune system um, produces inflammation, for example. It's going to reduce uh, your reproductive hormone levels. It's going to reduce your testosterone level a bit if you're a guy. It's going to reduce your estrogen level a bit if you're a woman. And we think that that might be why um, athletes have lower incidence of of reproductive cancers. So these are good things. These are good adjustments. Um, If you take it too far now, right, if you become, and this is is something that happens at the elite level, so this is not going to apply to 99% of the people listening, but if you are an elite level athlete and you have you have uh, spent so much energy every day on activity that you have no energy left for kind of the essential stuff. You've kind of cut to the bone on, on all those other activities. That can be bad, right? Because you've, you've cut the immune system down. Not only have you gotten rid of inflammation, which might be a good thing, now you've gotten rid of you know, the energy to make new white blood cells and, or to recover from a cold. You know, so uh, w- women especially, we, female athletes, is a well-known phenomenon called um, the female triad. Uh, overtraining syndrome, where they, they stop cycling, um, you have low bone density, um, you get sick and don't recover. Um, men have an equivalent to uh, overtraining syndrome happens in men too. So at the very extreme level, 
probably not great for you, or you have to watch out anyhow. Be pay, paying very close attention. But for most of our, you know, most athletes out there, um, what you're doing is is one of the reasons you're so healthy is is that you, your energy is constrained, and so that exercise is taken away from some of the things your body doesn't need to be doing. Sure. Well, I think we all know uh, certain p- individuals who uh, seem to be addicted to running in mm-hmm. particular. Yeah. And they they have a recognizable physiology. Yeah. Uh, and I've known some folks that have, have been in that, that realm, and you have to kind of worry about them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know. Uh, so what are they doing to their health? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that's it's uh, hard to diagnose that uh, <laughs> without, a, without being a doctor. But I'll say this. Um, when humans – so – Hunting and gathering evolved and required humans to be a lot more physically active because if you're hunting and gathering, it just takes a lot more physical activity than, than not. And our brains, um, our brains haven't always gone along with that, so our brains are happy to be, to be energy conservers and be lazy. Um, however, there's actually some parts of your brains that seem to respond really well to exercise. So that, p- that person who's addicted to exercise um, probably has a very strong uh, endocannabinoid reward response to exercise, that runner's high, that's right. a real phenomenon. That's not imagined. Uh, I've uh, Dave Reichlin, who's done some of this Hodge work with me uh, in his other research, he's done a lot of fantastic stuff, uh, has looked at uh, these, we call them endocannabinoids, because it's the same kind of molecule that people, you know, who use marijuana, that that's what they're after, is that ca- uh, uh, cannabinoid uh, hit. You have cannabinoid receptors in your brain. If you get if you, if they get hit, you feel happy, <laughs> and your body makes those cannabinoids, uh, endocannabinoids, we call them, when you when you exercise, or at least in a lot of people. Uh, so you know we have actually evolved to sort of reward ourselves for running. At least yeah, you know, if it's everybody, uh, it probably is everybody, but it's, it's at least a lot of people. Well, you the one of the things I found interesting in uh, researching to to prepare yeah. for our discussion was that the type of homeostasis you were talking about is also true among many animals. That's right. So, you know, you get uh, laboratory, you know, rodents or you know, bird studies, and you get these animals. Uh, it's a pretty common paradigm, actually, in laboratory research for different questions. But, you know, you go out and look at the literature. The, you take these rodents and you ramp up how active they have to be every day, how hard they have to work for their food. And all the time you're measuring energy expenditures. And it's, it's the same as in humans. It doesn't change. It does not re- respond to uh, exercise levels. Uh, Again, if you have, um, you know, uh, animals in the zoo versus animals in the wild, of course, animals in the wild are much more active, but they're not burning more calories. In fact, so here uh, in in the Triangle, we've got an amazing facility called the Duke Primate Center, uh, and or maybe it's called the yeah, anyway. They've got a, a lot of lemurs there. The lemur center. Sorry, the lemur center. Yeah, it's it's had a name change in my lifetime, but I'm not sure how recently. Anyway, uh, yeah, the Lemur Center is just fantastic. If you haven't gone, you should go. Um, and they've done uh, part of, uh, we actually published on this. I wasn't the one at the Lemur Center doing this work, but we, they collaborated with us on this. We measured energy expenditures in ring-tailed lemurs at the Lemur Center, and we measured uh, energy expenditure in ring-tailed lemurs in the wild in Madagascar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am very sure that the Madagascar lemurs are getting more activity. It's just a harder life. They actually burn a little bit less energy expen- uh, that every day than the ones at the Duke Lemur Center. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, on average, it's the same everywhere. But, you know, it even trends even the opposite way that you'd expect it to trend in that case. So it's kind of interesting. 
Well, that, that keeps you engaged. Yeah, right? that's right. <laughs> well, uh, Herman, where is your research going at this point? What are the big questions that you'd like to tackle yeah. going forward? Yeah, so there's, there's sort of two, maybe there's three big areas we're looking into. Um, one is we want to understand uh, how our bodies kind of figure out how many calories they're supposed to burn, and how they maintain the same energy expenditure no matter what our lifestyles are. So we want to look at these, at at people as they grow up and as your body kind of responds to its environment through the growth period uh, to figure out what its metabolic rate ought to be. You know, we don't really understand how that works at all right now. Mm -hmm. Um, We also want to understand at the cellular level exactly what's responding. So that's work we'll be doing in the labs and with collaborators around here. And then there's still a big uh, field component because... Uh, we still don't really have uh, enough of a handle, I don't think, on how variation in culture and lifestyle and diet and activity uh, affects the way our bodies work. I think, you know, we've learned so much from groups like the Hadza, um, other groups around the world, um, but it's just the tip of the iceberg. And, you know, so my lab is going to continue to go to the field. Uh, we've got a project starting up in northern Kenya this summer. Um, we've got collaborations in South America, and we're still doing work with the Hadza. And, and you know, we're going to keep on learning from these populations because they have a lot to teach us if we're smart enough to listen. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things I, I understand that you're about to look at is trying to figure out how the body knows its set point. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, elaborate on that. Yeah, bit. well, so we think that um, if we look across individuals, right, maybe your metabolism versus mine, we, I haven't measured you and I, and I haven't measured myself for that matter because we don't have the extra doses around. Uh, anyway, uh, you and I might differ even if we're the same weight, same age, all those things. We, we might differ by three or 400 calories a day and how many calories our, our bodies just naturally burn. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we will defend those set, those set points, but we don't know how, how, why does your body burn more calories than mine? Why do your cells burn more energy than mine do? Um, we don't really know why that is. Um, and so there's this whole big, uh, you know, just sort of fundamental question out there. Um, we know how important energy expenditure is, but we don't really understand the, the, the factors that, that influence it very well on, on a sort of, you know, on a, at, at a tight uh, sort of, you know, narrowed in precise level the the broad picture we get now um it's becoming more clear but that that sort of uh, more individualistic level we still are asking lots a lot of basic questions absolutely well i understand that you uh, actually theorize at least that that set point is actually set during potentially adolescence or early adult that's right so you know that that's what i was you know trying to, to allude to is that we're really interested in, in this ontogeny the question is as you go from childhood to adolescence to adulthood is there something about your environment in terms of how active you are how much exercise you get what kind of diet you eat that your body goes okay look i'm in this kind of environment i'm going to ha- track to a higher metabolic rate i'm in this kind of environment to track a lower metabolic rate is it just is it genetics is it your family history you know maybe people who are all close related have the same alleles uh tend to have lower metabolic rates or higher metabolic rates. Um, we just don't know yet. So there's a whole, uh, a whole body of science there and work to do that, that we're just now kind of cracking into. Well, I, I saw that, and I wondered if, if fetal development might, might play a role since there's so much emerging about fetal origin sure. of adult diseases. That's absolutely right. Uh, and that's a really good point. Um, you know, if we think about... The environment that you grow up in, we don't have to start that when you're born, 
that environment goes back in, in utero. So as you point out, uh, so yeah, uh, you know, we don't know yet what the critical periods are. I mean, we know that there are these critical periods in life where, um, you know, whatever insult happens to you when you're two years old might have a big effect on health later on. Happens at five years old, it won't have as big of an effect. For I just sort of speaking hypothetically, so we don't know what those critical windows are for for metabolism. How 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 open and plastic are they? Do they is it a big developmental window that's that's sort of open and, and plastic your whole childhood or adolescence? Is it a really narrow window that your body trains its meta- metabolism early on? We don't. We really don't know. That leaves plenty of work for you. Yeah, yeah, lots of fun <laughs> stuff to do down the road. We're excited about this. And I understand you're actually working on a book. That's exactly right. Yeah, so um, it's uh, it's been um, fun thinking about metabolism in these new ways, and you know, and talking with people uh, both in, in the research side of things as well as you know, on the public side of things, uh, people's misperceptions uh, about how our bodies burn calories. Um, and, of course, just all this new stuff that's come out that, that nobody's heard of yet because it's so new. Um, I want to put those together into a book that, that kind of is your guide to your metabolic engine, how it's evolved, how it works, how to keep it healthy. And when can we look for this work? Uh, as soon as I'm done writing it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. No, so uh, we're, you know, hopefully in a, a year or two. I hope in 2020, let's say. Okay. Well, we will be lining up at the bookstore for Fantastic. sure. Fantastic. Well, uh, Herman, it's been great. The hour has flown by, as it often does. Uh, and best of luck for continued success with your work. Thanks so much for having me on. And we have some great guests lined up in the coming weeks here on Radio and Vivo. You can always check out the lineup on our website at radioandvivo.net or our Facebook site for our lineup of upcoming shows. Join us again next time for Radio In Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community, right here on volunteer-powered WCOM-FM, Carborough and Chapel Hill. If you enjoy the show, we ask that you support the station by visiting our website, wcomfm.org, and making a secure online contribution by clicking the Donate Now button. We rely on listener support to keep your voice in the community on the air. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time.